Hello, and welcome to Fave 5 from Fans, the podcast where I, your humble host, Jamie Ray, invite a friend to make a top five list of their favorite things that we share a common interest in. Then we sit down and compare and contrast, dissect and disseminate our choices here for you, the listening audience, and let you decide who's right, who's wrong, and will we still be friends. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Fave 5 from Fans. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Fave 5 Food-Related Films. Sitting here with a friend of mine, Lo Chang. Welcome, Lo. Hi. Thanks for having me. And another of our staples, uh, (laughs) Wilbur Augustus. Thank you for joining us. No problem. You know, I love doing this. Yeah. Gus is going to uh, to sit in and, and tell us where we're wrong along the way. He doesn't have his own list, but we thought we'd uh, try a little something different today. Um, so thank you both for coming. Lo, if you would, tell us a little bit about yourself, what brings you here, and makes it uh, unique for you to be with us. Well, so, <clears throat> excuse me, I, have, uh, I guess I've known Jamie now for about uh, seven years, and I have a general hobby of cooking and uh, kind of doing chefy and foodie type of things, so oh, he invited me along mm. to talk about some food things, although I'm going to end up disappointing you slightly because not all of my picks do they actually eat the food. That's that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Um, it's your list, and no matter how wrong it is, I will do my best to nicely tell you how wrong it is. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being here again. Um, if you're ready, I think we'll go ahead and jump right into it. Do you have an honorable mention? I actually did come up with one uh, since we discussed that. So About can... 10 minutes ago. I know. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, and that's fine. Um... <laughs> I did throw that one in at the last minute. But So this one should be one that almost made the list, but when you finally sat down, you decided it just didn't make the cut. Nice. Thank you. Nice. This will be a pretty uh, punny-heavy uh, podcast, I'm sure, so please... Uh, bear with us. So my honorable mention uh, that I came up with that I thought, uh, mostly because it, it's not a major part of the movie, but it just it was a scene that made me kind of tickled. Mm-hmm. You guys remember seeing Robocop? Well, sure. And when they introduce the uh, Robocop, Murphy himself, and they first bring him into the precinct, they have this ice cream food dispenser dispense yeah. this, this, this <laughs> pulse, and they said, oh, it's, it's all the nutrients he needs. Well, later, uh, when his partner... Uh, is helping him, you know, get ready for the final confrontation. She brings a couple of jars of baby food, and she says, oh, I brought you food. And he's sitting here, like, loading his gun and getting prepared, and he looks over, just deadpan, Peter, typical Peter Waller. No thanks, I'm not hungry. Did you bring the gun? The precinct was deserted. Half the forest didn't show up for work today. Everyone else walks out at midnight. I guess we're on strike. I wasn't sure what you needed. I sort of grabbed things. Your gun? You asked for this? I brought you some food. Oh, thank you. I'm not hungry. And for some reason, that scene is always like in the middle of this, this, this satire, violent movie. I went, huh? Oh, that's funny. And I don't know why. I always thought it was a funny scene. Yeah, but it probably has all the nutrients that he needed as well. Probably. You know, good old Gerber baby food. Barely missed RoboCop. Your wife will be proud. <laughs> Had to bring it in. You Had to bring it that in. RoboCop in. She's a, Jennifer, uh, his wife, is a huge RoboCop fan. 
and she'll be on the podcast at some point where we'll be talking about the best cop movies. She doesn't know it yet, by the way. I just thought of that the other day. So that's a great one. So I have one that I really, really, really wanted to make this list. As a matter of fact, I wrote it in to the Fade Five before I even started on it. But it had been so long since I watched it, and I went back and rewatched it, and I was just could not make it. It's 1996's Stephen King's Thinner. Oh, it's, you know, movie. it's such a good movie. It has food throughout. <laughs> Uh, no matter what he does, after receiving the curse from the gypsy, he keeps losing weight. If he misses a meal, he loses weight faster. So there's so many different scenes with him just gorging himself. Um, I figure, oh man, that's got to be on the list. And then you get to the end where he wants to take the curse and give it to someone else. You may remember the gypsy makes him a pie, yep. and he has to cut himself and bleed into the pie. Yep. Does anybody remember what flavor it was? Uh, blackberry? It was a strawberry pie. Was it strawberry? Yeah. I thought it was like blackberry or boysenberry or something. It was, it was strawberry. And so then uh, we all I don't remember how it all ends. He takes it home, the, leaves mm-hmm. it in the fridge with the intention that his wife is going to eat it, right, thinking right. he can live without her. Which, he, which she does. Because you know, she was cheating on him. She was cheating on him, yeah. But then the daughter comes in the next morning and she eats a piece. And so as he's about understands that he's got to end his life, the door the, the doorbell rings and he goes to answer the door and the wife's lover is there, the doctor. And so he says, hey, why don't you come on in? I'm fixing to have a slice of pie. I'd like you to have some too. Dr. Mikey. Might early for a house call, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It's not what you think. Uh, Heidi was upset, and uh, I I just stopped by to see how she was doing. Don't sweat it, Mike. I might have done the same thing in your shoes. After all, I I was acting like a bit of a jerk. But I'm fine now, even putting a little weight back on. As a matter of fact, I was just going to dig into a big slice of this breakfast pie. Care to join me? Uh, I really shouldn't. Oh, come on, Mike. I've settled everything with Heidi. Now it's your turn. Pie's delicious. You sure I'm not intruding? Positive. And that's where the Was movie that the movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I yeah, just the movie. I don't think that uh, that's how the book ended. Mm-hmm. I, remember they, I remember reading the book. I don't remember watching the movie. Yeah. I did. I don't remember it. Yeah. So I really wanted to make it, but I just, I just couldn't get the cut, so... Had to do it. But now that leads us to our real top five. And so, Lo, why don't you start us off there? All right. So, the first one I want to bring up um, <clears throat> again, this is a situation where they're not, this one, they actually do eat the food. And the food doesn't have anything to do with it being on my favorite list. Mm-hmm. It's just because of the setup. Um, it's actually the original Alien. Oh, okay. On the Nostromo, yeah. after they discover the the alien artifact, after the John Hurt character has the uh, face hugger fall off, and he, they think he's all better. They're sitting down to the crew meal, which is great because they're all sitting there talking about what they can do with their share of the profits when they get home, and all of a sudden, blah, everything happens. And I'd rather be eating something else, but. Uh... Right now, I'm digging food. Uh, you, you, know, you know what it's made of. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. I don't want to talk about what it's made of. I'm eating this. 
mystique behind it you know where the uh, Ridley Scott right the director mm-hmm. really um, did it on a first take and didn't tell anybody yeah, about right. the and so like Especially all the on Veronica Carlson so I love that scene Cartwright sorry because it's I mean it, the, the food in that particular instance sets the mood because it's the one meal you know on this uh, remote space worthy mining vessel that that's all they see and this is the one time they can get together it's all homey and lovey exactly. and family and no sudden blah yeah. you know it, and I think it's a great scene it has always stuck out when you told me about this I'm like oh this is this has got to be there because it's one of the best scenes I think. It that's is. true. That's true, and it is right there with all the food. Yeah, and I think it would be different if it were like on the bridge talking about the next destination, but because they made it that scene, that's why it's, it's safe. That's, that's why it's there exactly because exactly. it involves it revolves around the food. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I like that. So my number five, being that it's my podcast, I get to move it a little bit. My choice is going to be a TV show, actually, I, Zombie. Okay. So I don't know if you've ever watched it. I'm familiar with it. I have never seen it. It's, it's a great show. You should see it sometime. The whole premise is that a, um, an assistant who works in the city morgue um, goes to a rave party. And at this party, they're giving around this drug. And they're also drinking these energy drinks. And if you take both of them together at the same time, it kills you. But then you come back as a zombie. Now, when you first come back as a zombie, your skin is white, your hair has lost all of its color, but you're not a mindless brains. So when our lead character wakes up, she realizes, holy crap, she's actually in a body bag already on the beach because there's so many of these people who have died. So she is then able to go back to her her regular life with no one knowing that she died. They think she just got a great die job. And um, she realizes that she has to eat. She realizes she's become a zombie. But instead of going out and killing someone, working in a morgue, she's basically got a buffet in front of her. Mm-hmm. But as she takes some of it and slices it and eats it, she then gets the memories and the characteristics and the personality of that person for a little while, maybe a day or two of it. Uh, so that eating of the brain, which is her only source of real food, plays an integral part in every episode. Cause of death is blunt force trauma to the head, but the guy was a mess. Contusions at various stages of healing, ribs that look like he broke a different one every week. The fog certainly took some licks for the greater good. Ravi, the most this guy ever did was momentarily distract criminals who were shocked to see a grown man in tights. I disagree. I think it's noble to go out and pursue danger to protect the innocent. To be an active symbol of hope. To show the world that one person can make a difference. I just think it's kind of ridiculous. Would you say that to Batman? If he were real? Yes, I would. You should be a little more open to this. 
I mean, we don't know which of Chris Allred's personality traits will be more dominant. Shop teacher or superhero wannabe? Will you start rappelling down the sides of buildings, or should I expect a personalized spice rack? I don't think my relationship can take another minute of stalker brain, so I'll take either. It helps her to solve murders. But the neat thing is, is after the first couple of times of her, you know, just slicing it off sashimi style and having some, they start to cook it and they start to blend it and they start to do all of these things. So every episode almost, you realize, okay, well, I'm going to have to eat some of this guy's brain to figure out who killed him. It's okay. I'm going to slice it up tartar with some sriracha on a Melba toast this time <laughs> or next time she puts it into a pasta dish. So it becomes very, very important. Have they put out a cookbook? I think that is a that is a missed opportunity. We'll have <laughs> I mean, to obviously you would it. not use it use brain, but I mean substitute chicken. You know, well, it puts various different preparations. Well, there's all kinds of brain you can use. You wouldn't use human brains. Maybe you could get some cow brain. Yeah, that's dangerous, man. Cow disease all you know. That is. That is. I but, think chicken's probably still safe. But if you're to. eating a brain-based cookbook, you're already out there taking chances. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, please let, throw us down your number four. Um, this one, they don't actually eat. You guys remember Empire Strikes Back? Yeah. Okay. Now I'm interested now. Well, I know what scene you're talking uh-huh. about. So. This one sticks out to me because, again, I feel like the food sets up the scene, but I have no idea what type of scene they were trying to set up. Mm-hmm. So right as right before Lando is about to betray them to the Empire, right. he invites them to refreshments, mm-hmm. and they walk down the hallway, and he gives a little, oh, I've just uh, negotiated a deal that'll keep the Empire off our back, and they op- open to a banquet hall. Right. Full table banquet set up, there's glassware, plates, everything else. And there's Darth Vader standing on the other side of the table. They have the little altercation, which makes no sense. And then Boba Fett casually walks in. And then after they have their verbal exchange, oh, you're doomed, everything else, the door closes and they're walking in. Mm-hmm. Aren't you afraid the Empire is going to find out about this little operation? Shut you down? It's always been a danger, but it looms like a shadow over everything we've built here. But things have developed that'll ensure security. I've just made a deal that'll keep the Empire out of here forever. We would be honored if you would join us. I had no choice. They arrived right before you did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, too. How does that work? Are they going to sit down and eat? <laughs> well, I mean, and, and what's going through Vader's mind when that's just like, we're here to capture them. Okay, great. Leave my city alone. No, no, no. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You have a banquet hall? <laughs> you have some nice china? I mean, I don't understand. I mean, it's a great scene. I love the movie. Probably my, probably my favorite of, the, of all the Star Wars movies. But that scene has always stuck out in my head. Like, how is this supposed to work? Right, Do you right. break bread and then surrender and get frozen in carbonite? I mean, yeah. And then 
Vader can't pull his helmet off to eat. Yeah, but a funny thing was actually, so I went back and looked at this video when I was comprising, comprising my list. I went back and watched it. As the door closes, they're all walking in, and Vader sits down. And I'm like, wait, how? <laughs> just the whole thing just didn't make any sense to me. But I thought it was funny because, like, as exact opposite to the alien, this sets the mood. But I wasn't sure what mood they were trying to set right. because how does that, how, do, how does the capture prisoners over a dinner Right, right. Over a fancy dinner. How does that work? Yeah, it's not a Norman Rockwell um, picture walking in with the with the turkey there. Although you, the lightsabers could do some awfully good carving. I'm sure they could. Straight through the bone and the platter and the table. That's a great point, though, because you've got Vader who can't eat the meal. And now you've got, we know from the, watching the Mandalorian show, Boba Fett couldn't take his helmet off and eat. Although, side, obviously this is totally side off the food thing, but Boba Fett is not a Mandalorian that has been explored in other lore. Boba Fett and Jango Fett were not Mandalorian. They just had the armor. Really? Yes. I haven't heard this yet. <clears throat> uh, there's, there's a lot of fan theories. A lot of it revolves around the uh, cartoons, which are considered canon since they are actually Disney. But uh, Clone Wars and Rebels, a lot of it speaks to Jango Fett not being an actual Mandalorian. Oh. So his clones are not actual Mandalores. Well, that would make sense because you see him without his helmet a lot in the first movies. But I don't understand why Boba Fett wouldn't be a Mandalorian, except that he wasn't raised. Well, you're, you're sitting here speaking about uh, uh, the Mandalore, which if you haven't seen, go check it out. Uh, it's actually been very engrossing to watch. Um, but you don't necessarily have to be... I think Mandalore is like, like being Jewish. Mm-hmm. You can be born into it. But it's also religion because it's being implied that the Mandalore on the series is not a native Mandalore. Right. He was taken in. Exactly. So who knows? But a lot of people are saying, a lot of the internet articles and Reddit threads that I'm reading are indicating that both both Fett and Jango Fett were never true Mandalorians. See, I could go with you for uh, Jango Fett for the dad, but it, it just kind of gnaws at my head. So why do we never see Boba Fett without his helmet on? Well, there's a lot of that that's also misspoken because in the uh, uh, the Rebels cartoon, the Mandalorians in that cartoon walk around with their helmets off all the time. So then the further theory is that it's certain clans, that right. the clan that the Mandalore is part of is different than the one that the TV, the cartoons had, which is different from what Boba Fett may be. Like you know, shopping cart Catholics. Yeah. Exactly. So. Okay. <laughs> that's cool. So now that we've gotten to Boba Fett and Mandalore's from favorite food scenes, <laughs> what was your number four? Well, my number four was actually a new movie that I had just watched for the first time recently. Um, it was a Riff Tracks favorite uh, called um, Ice Cream Man from 1995. Not familiar with this. It stars Clint Howard. Yes, Clint Howard as uh, Gregory Tudor who is a young man, uh, sees an ice cream man gunned down in front of him. And it kind of messes with his head a little bit, so he spends some time in a um, mental institution. And when he comes out, he takes up the mantle as an ice cream man. Except he's also a psychotic killer. <laughs> oh, sounds so, like fun, entertaining, entertaining movie. The first time I ever watched it was on Riff Tracks, so I didn't catch a lot of... The, the dialogue because they were you know talking over it, so I went back out and rented the movie online and watched it 
in its entirety. And let me tell you, this was a this was a great film. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. There's a lot of tongue in cheek in it. Um, Jan Michael Vincent actually plays one of the detectives. I know. Close your mouth. <laughs> he plays one of the detectives, and uh, Lee Majors' son, Lee Majors the second, plays his partner. So you've got detectives Gifford and Maltwin who are trying to find out um, who's killing people and they're disappearing. And so eventually the trail leads to the ice cream man's it just all kind of hilarity <laughs> ensues. Uh, at one point, he murders uh, David Naughton, another star, who was one of the uh, parents, of one of the children who's kind of following the ice cream man, beheads him, puts his head into a waffle iron, and then serves him to David Naughton's character's mistress. <laughs> hey, ice cream man! Come on, let's go! I'm in a hurry here! Yo, come on, this isn't a parking lot. Hey, ice cream man. Ah! This is not a hunk of junk. Well, hello. If I'd known this was delivery day, why that standing, then it would have never made it to the door. I brought you something special. Ooh, sounds yummy. You know, we should swap recipes. A creamsicle for a custard pie. <laughs> so it's a uh, it's a really interesting film. Um, I, I enjoyed it, and I was surprised at how many people popped up in this film. Gregory's got a nurse named Mrs. Wharton who lives next door to him, kind of watches over him, played by Olivia Hussey, of all people. So, little known film, but it's all about the ice cream in this movie. <laughs> so, if you're digging the frozen concoctions, Ice Cream Man from 1995 is the, the, the movie to watch. Uh, you can't go wrong with the Clint Howard movie, right? <laughs> I, actually, there oh, was it does a, sound like you need to have a certain amount of good humor to oh, enjoy the movie. Wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there actually was the, uh, they're trying to do a sequel uh, back in 2014 when Kickstarter was uh, around. They tried to get enough funds. They needed, I believe, three hundred thousand dollars to make it. Um, sadly, they only made about four thousand bucks. <laughs> so. <laughs> It failed, but there's always still hope that Ice Cream Man 2, the next scoop, is out there. <laughs> wow. So, I'll, pa I'll pass that off to you, and let's see what you got next. So, speaking of having a lot of stars in a movie, uh, my next one is The Blues Brothers. So, okay. have you ever seen The Blues Brothers? I yes. think maybe once when I was very young. I don't remember it. So, <clears throat> for those of you who are not familiar, Blues Brothers originated as a skit on uh, Saturday Night Live with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd as a couple mm -hmm. of uh, white guys in sunglasses and suits, kind of dressed like G-Men of the time, and they're, they have a blues band. Well, they actually managed to get a movie produced uh, in around the Chicago area. Being a native of Chicago, I'm a diehard 
fan of this movie. It's corny, but it has a bunch of stars, music stars in it. Ray Charles, um, Aretha Franklin's in it, John Lee Hooker, Cab Calloway, Steven Spielberg makes appearance, Frank Oz. I mean, there's just a ton of people so in this people. movie. So, the premise of the movie is that <clears throat> Dan Aykroyd's character, Elwood Blues, uh, is just get, picking up his brother, Joliet Jake, who's just getting out of prison for uh, spending uh, five years in prison. They come out, uh, they go to the orphanage to visit the nun that raised them, and they discover that the uh, tax assessor's office has uh, assessed the tax and they're going to have to shut down the orphanage. So, long story, kind of shorter, <laughs> they uh, go to a church uh, to listen to message, which is being delivered by the Reverend, uh, uh, oh, I completely just lost his name. James Brown? Uh, James Brown. So he plays a reverend at a church and he oh, sings. Shame on you. Shame, I'm shame, sorry. I'm naming all these other people. <laughs> In any event, Joliet Jake, uh, the John Belushi character, suddenly realized that he's on a mission from God to save the orphanage. A mission from God. So he and Dan Aykroyd go and they try to get the band back together. The first group of, of band members, you know, has four or five people and say, oh, you're never going to get these two people back. Um, they're, they've got cush jobs and they've got a, a good gig now. They say that uh, Matt Guitar Murphy, who took Blue Lou with him, is now running a soul food joint with his wife on Maxwell Street, famous landmark in Chicago. So they go and they go walk into this, this little rundown diner and... Aretha Franklin walks up to them and asks them what they want. And it's a little bit of a running gag through the, through the movie that Elwood Blues likes toast. <laughs> so he asks her if she has, if they have, uh, if they have bread. He says, of, of course, I'd like some dry white bread toasted. And Aretha Franklin asks them, do they want, does she, does he want jam or butter? No, ma'am, just dry. And she looks at him funny and then goes over to Juliet Jake and he says, Do you have fried chicken? She says, Best darn fried chicken in Chicago. So he orders four fried chickens and a Coke. And the exchange goes back and forth because she can't believe this. So she's like, So you want toast and four whole fried chickens? <laughs> Would you like anything to drink? No, ma'am, a Coke. So she goes back to the kitchen. And, you know, <clears throat> in typical fashion says, oh, there's these two honkies out there dressed like G-men. Get this. The tall one wants dry white bread. And McIntyre Murphy, who's her husband, who's the cook, looks up. Elwood. <laughs> <laughs> and then Aretha Franklin turns around and says, the other one wants whole four whole fried chickens and a Coke. And McIntyre, that's Jake. And he walks out and says, that's the Blues Brothers. And it's just... For me, it's a hilarious scene. They never get their food because <laughs> so they convince McIntyre Murphy to come back to the band, and Blue Lou, who's a saxophonist, is in the back washing dishes. Help you, boys. You got any uh, white bread? Yes. I'll have some toasted white bread, please. You want butter or jam on that toast, honey? No, ma'am. Dry. Got any fried chicken? Best damn chicken in the state. Bring me four fried chickens and a Coke. 
You want chicken wings or chicken legs? Four fried chickens and a Coke. And some dry white toast, please. You all want anything to drink with that? No, ma'am. A Coke. Be up in a minute. We got two honkies out there dressed like Hasidic diamond merchants. Say what? They look like they're from the CIA or something. What they want to eat? The tall one wants white bread, toast, dry, with nothing on it. Elwood. And the other one wants four whole fried chickens and a Coke. And Jake shit the blues brother. It's a, a a caricature of their of their characters because like there's three other scenes where Elwood makes toast. And you know, and that's just what he eats. And you get the impression that Jake, uh, the the his brother, is just an omnivore, just eats everything and everything and, and so forth. And it's just a funny scene because and once we actually get done in here, I'll have to find the clip because the clip by itself is about seven minutes long. And it's hilarious because they do this all deadpan. And it's just it's it's just a great moment. And I think it really encapsulates the film because they do so such a good job of defining who these characters are just by this one simple basic order. Yeah. yeah. You know, so. It's interesting. Yeah, I never would have put that together. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it's... Well, my number four speaks specifically to food. Not just any food, but real good southern barbecue. And that is 1980s Motel Hell. <laughs> Both of you... Oh, oh, have you seen I've it? I've heard of it. I don't think I... Yeah, I can't even say You that. guys know. this. The, the Some of these older horror movies are just... Horror movies aren't really my thing to begin with. Mm-hmm. But I... I think I've heard of that, but no, I can't say that. I've not understood. This is seen actually a movie that Roger Ebert gave three out of four stars to. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> he, okay. called, he said, What Motel Hell brings to this genre is the refreshing sound of laughter. The movie is disgusting, of course. It's impossible to satirize this material, I imagine, without representing the subject matter you're satirizing. And that material is the fact that that Vincent Smith has some of the best smoked meats in all the town and, and on all the South. But when people want to know what his special recipe is, he's very shy about it and keeps it very close to heart, which is probably a good thing because most of it is human flesh. <laughs> <laughs> he makes a use of the vagrants, the hitchhikers, and even the occasional biker gang to take and use their flesh. But you know, it's not enough to find or even kill someone and then use their flesh. No, no, no. You've got to tenderize that meat and get it just right before you use it. So old uh, Farmer Smith and his wife, Ida, or his sister Ida, I should say, uh, played by uh, Nancy Parsons, uh, Ball Bricker from the Porky movies. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, they will incapacitate them and then he uses an auger in his back field to dig a hole and bury them to their necks, slicing their vocal cords and then feeding them through the neck until they get nice and just right for the pickings. So there's some really creepy scenes in this movie where Farmer Smith goes out to check on the crop and the, all of these heads are under burlap sacks. And he takes them off one by one. And the only sounds they can make are... 
to say <laughs> and one of the unluckies is John Ratzenberger who plays oh. a drummer from a band that um, gets taken care of in the street I believe that um, Farmer Smith sets a trap for him and uh, so he gets buried down there and um, it's up to Sheriff Bruce Smith played by Paul Link Artie Grossman from Chips Uh, to figure out what's going on and um, in the end you end up having a battle between Farmer Smith wearing a pig's head (laughs) and a chainsaw (laughs) battle with our intrepid (laughs) sheriff (laughs) okay yeah yeah so there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of flesh eating in the movie but the people eating it just don't know but it's some good. <laughs> wow. I'm a little disturbed, to be honest with you. Why? I don't know. No, I'm just really kind of joking more oh, than anything okay. else. I mean, obviously it's a movie, but... Because what would be wrong with that? I mean, you know, it's perfectly good use. <laughs> mm. All right, well, let's move on then. Uh, you're number two now. So, I figured this had to be somewhere on the list, but it's not going to be the scene that you think. Um, Ratatouille. Pixar movie. Ratatouille almost made my list. So it's an honorable, honorable mention? It, it's an, yes, it's an honorable, honorable mention behind Poultrygeist from Trauma Films. Poultrygeist. About, about the uh, fast food fried chicken place built on top of an Indian burial ground. <laughs> the sad thing is, looking over here at Gus, he's not kidding. I'm no. sure that movie actually exists. <laughs> it does. Wow. Poultrygeist. Poultrygeist. I actually made it to find that one just because just on the merits of the fun alone. It's bad. <laughs> so with first of all, as a foodie and an amateur chef and, and someone who takes the cooking seriously, the, the movie itself has a lot of uh, good homages and representation of proper food preparation and uh, and so forth. But specifically the reason I picked this movie, there's two scenes uh, one near the mo- beginning of the movie, one a little bit past halfway, where the where Remy, the the primary rat, like takes a bite of food, and the the screen goes to just him, and it's a blank screen, and he has one bite of food, like I think it's a strawberry and a piece of cheese, and he bites into the strawberry, and you get a voiceover describing how there's sweetness and pops and so forth, and then like next to his head. There's these little swirls and pink and little explosions that, that appear. And then as he puts that down and takes a bite of the cheese, on the other side of his head, little yellow lines that appear that kind of yeah. represent the saltiness and, and everything else. And then he goes on to say, but when you combine them both, and he bites both at the same time, and the colored swirls are like in a combined like fireworks show type of above his head. I'm like, and the first time I saw this movie, I wasn't into cooking as much as I am these days. I was much younger. But going back and watching this again, I, I'm struck with the same imagery that it was. It amazed me that these cartoonists, graphic artists, whatever, whatever is the appropriate term for them, were animators. able... Animators, thank you. 
we're able to capture what I kind of see and envision when you know you 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 cook that. And I'm not talking about like hamburger helper or spaghetti out of a jar or something. <laughs> like that. You know, when you go to the trouble of making something from scratch <clears throat> and looking at the individual ingredients and tasting and knowing what each one tastes like, for them to be able to visually interpret that into a description has always amazed me. And it's one of the reasons I still absolutely love this movie because of those two scenes. The second one, he tr- he's having his brother, cousin, Emil, and who is not, who's used to eating trash. And he's eating the cheese and he gets like the same little swirls, but they're very muted and they're very tiny. He's like, mm, yeah, no, you lost it. <laughs> and it's just, and I think it's very, it's, like I said, it's very endearing to me because it, it does visually represent kind of that thought process of the, of the cooking aspect right, of things, right. you know? I have got to teach you about food. Close your eyes. Now, take a bite of this. Ow, no, no, no! Don't just hork it down! Too late. <laughs> Here. Now, chew it slowly. Mm. Only think about the mm. taste. Uh, see? Not really. Creamy, salty, sweet, and oaky nuttiness. You detect that? Oh, I'm detecting nuttiness. Close your eyes. Now taste this. A whole different thing, right? Sweet, crisp, slight tang on the finish. Okay. Now, try them together. Okay. I think I'm getting a little something there. See? Could be the tang. That's it. Now, imagine every great taste in the world being combined into infinite combinations of taste that no one has tried yet. Discoveries to be made! I think. Uh-huh. You lost me again. Ah, yeah. But that was interesting. Uh, and if you ever get a chance, look back and look at those scenes. That are, they're hard to find because they're, they're little snippets, but it's just, it was very eye-opening for I me. I want to say I remember that first scene, too, because I thought it was a very unique way... To visually describe taste, yeah, that you couldn't, you know, exactly, you know, uh, it's such a wonderful movie, though. Honestly, it yeah. is. I mean, beyond the, the whole concept of the, the sanitariness of rodents cooking and handling human food for consumption and everything else, but yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, well, you never look in the kitchen anyway, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> that that's a great one, and I really like to think how many chefs might actually have been um, prompted to do what they wanted to do now because of that movie. Because you've got so many of a younger crowd now that's going out and doing the food trucks or the pop-up uh, restaurants. And who knows how many of them may have watched that and said, hey, if a rat can do it, I can do it, you know? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> that's a great one. Um, so my number two, and I'm, I'm telling you, up right until we got here, I could not decide between my number one and number two. Okay. I've got to say definitively, unless I change my mind, <laughs> my number two from 1973, Soylent Green, starring Chuck <laughs> Heston. <laughs> oh, Spoiler alert, uh, we're going to tell you what Soylent Green is, so if you haven't <laughs> seen it, well, shame on you, basically. You need to go and watch this movie, but stop now, go watch it, two and a half hours later, come back, and we're going to finish. <laughs> um but but I'm, I'm trying to think. Uh, there may be somebody in this room who hasn't seen Soylent Green. This is true. I have not seen Soylent Green, but I know the premise and I know the, the spoiler at the end. 
yeah. which I think might also be partially responsible for the reason of my not going to see it because I already know. I mean, True. can you imagine going and seeing The Sixth Sense and already knowing the the punchline? It kind of destroys the movie. Exactly. You know. Exactly. So, so I will have to say that this movie um, is a lot about the journey to get to the end. Because yeah, if you don't know what Soylent Green is, then you're. I don't know where you are. <laughs> I think we could pretty much leave it unspoken, right? We don't yeah, want to give I mean, any spoilers to your yeah, your, yeah. your fan base. Yeah, you, you, there will be a, a a very small part here at the end where Charlton Heston tells us what Soil and Green is, but we won't hear it here at the booth. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great film. Having not seen it, I can tell you it's about um, a detective named Thorne in a. Not apocalyptic, but... More a dystopian future. Exactly. A dystopian in New York City. It was based off of uh, Harry Harrison's novel called Make Room, Make Room from 1966. And it's set actually in the year 1999. With theme, It's all about overpopulation and uh, overuse of resources uh, and the fact that there's just not enough to go around anymore. So the government has been making food subsidies... Uh, and they make different colors, like Soylent Brown, and I believe Soylent Orange, things like that. Um, and it's all plant-based, soy-based stuff, and they start to run out. So they start coming out with a new one called Soylent Green. And there are, almost every time that the government comes out to give out the food, they run out. So there's riots. Well, in, early in the film... Charlton Heston's character, uh, Robert Thorne, is brought in to investigate a murder. And he is trying to figure out who this executive is. He lives in a very high-end part of New York. Um, He actually has fresh food. He has strawberries in there. So you can tell from the way that it's played that those things are very far and few between. So it has a wonderful cast. Um, Chuck Connors. Uh, the yeah, Rifleman. The Rifleman. He plays a character named Tab, who is kind of a, uh, a heavy. Um, you've got uh, Brock Peters, um, Captain Sisko's father from Deep Space Nine. He's in it. I did uh, not realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, Dick Van Patten has a very small <laughs> role as an usher in what's basically the Death House um, later on in the film. And Joseph Cotton is in it. He is also um, from a Hitchcock movie, The uh, Stranger. Oh, man, it's hell getting old. I'm going to fix this in post-audio, though. (laughs) Shadow of a Doubt. Shadow of a Doubt is a great American classic, um, underappreciated by many, but nevertheless one of Hitchcock's most personal and favorite films. Can and we also fix the gaff where I didn't remember James Brown? I could, but I probably won't. <laughs> Don't worry, I did the same thing on mine. And this is actually the 101st and last film starring Edward G. Robinson. Um, he died 12 days later after wrapping final filming, so he never got to see the, the actual finished product. Um, and he plays... Basically, Charlton Heston's, um, for lack of a better term, librarian. Whenever he goes to him um, with the murder, he starts asking him questions. And the only place to get all of this is to go back to the library. 
and nobody ever goes back to the library. So it's really a, a really great part, and you can tell that they're acquaintances, but at the same time, there's a much deeper level to their relationship. And um, at the end of the film, the senior citizens, or anybody basically, can go to one of these death centers and basically be put to sleep. But if you go, you get like a, a final meal, they, they bathe you, they let you, you know, lay out, and they'll play all of these scenes up above you, and they'll play music, and it's a very mellow and peaceful way to, to die off. Uh, had that not happened, you would never have the ending that with Charlton Heston finding out what's all in the green is. Uh, great film. Uh, I know it is kind of a stretch to talk about the fact that this movie <laughs> is in the food related, but Soylent Green is the number one food. Right. Uh, so I thought it was a great one. So if you no. haven't seen it, yeah, we should come over. Maybe you can sit down and watch it with me. And I'll... I, actually, yeah, that sounds good because it, I, I know what it is. I've never actually, like, I knew the story. Mm-hmm. So And it's a, it's a great, it's a, it's a murder mystery. It's a, it is a very slow burn, um, but I do feel it's definitely worth the ride. So come over and gush. You can come with us, and we'll. Yes, we'll, even though I've seen it multiple times. Yeah, now. it's still worth the watch. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's a classic. Oh, it really is. So now we are at our number one picks. I'm very interested to see. I have no idea what your number one's going to be. So my number one pick um, is kind of an oddball one, uh, kind of like the Ratatouille one. It kind of speaks to how I see and how I envision food. Mm-hmm. Um, you two know this because you guys have been over to my place and eaten food and so forth, and you've seen me fix it. And I do have to tell you, sometimes when I eat your food, I do get those little colored things going <laughs> off. You make some amazing dishes. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. But uh, a lot of it is just a matter of uh, me pouring my heart and soul into this. So a recent, fairly recent movie called Chef. Mm-hmm. John Favreau. Yes. yes. Uh, so he plays a... Um, basically a high-class restaurant chef who gets fired for reasons that aren't necessarily important for this conversation. But he decides to kind of refine himself and he opens up a a food truck doing the things that he loves to do and cooking food he likes to cook. So to give you a little backstory on the movie, Jon Favreau himself is not a acclaimed chef in any way, shape, or form. He has learned a lot. So he hired... uh, a chef by the name of Roy Choi, who's known in the West Coast for having started the Kogi food trucks, mm. as his uh, as his you know on-site expert uh, consultant. The throughout the movie, uh, the Favreau character rebonds with his uh, distant son because he's he's got a son from a divorced marriage, uh, but they work on the food truck. And at one point, the 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 kid is like in his apartment, and he makes the kid a grilled cheese. The grilled cheese itself is pretty amazing. There's three different types of cheese. It's made out of pretty thick hollow bread, properly browned, the whole nine yards. And it's a good sandwich, but they don't really talk about it in the movie. If you watch all the way through the movie, as the rolling credits, uh, end credits are rolling, they show, you know how some movies will have like uh, outtakes and mm-hmm. stuff like that? Right. Well, they show a little screen off to the side that shows Roy Choi and John Favreau sitting in front of a grilled flat, flat top making this grilled cheese. And you hear Roy Choi discussing. It looks good, it looks good already. Right 
this olive oil? When you grab it over there, grabbing all your cheese. Yeah. What are you doing there? Spreading it around or finding? Spreading around. What are you looking for there? Heat. Heat. So where's the hot so spot? Yeah. Right here is the hot spot. So you're controlling it all the time. You're always controlling it, almost like a DJ as well. You're looking, you're looking. As soon as you get your big puddle, this is now when you start here. So you can see all sandwich is starting to evolve. And you can see the cheese is starting to evolve. Yeah. So we get to here. You're almost and even now as you get further, John, you're getting in like a surgeon now. Even you're changing even your grips here, you're changing your positions. And moving around, but you're not you're not too busy with it. You're you're precise, but then sometimes you step back. Nothing else exists except right. this. This is the only thing that exists in this world right now. And if you fuck this up, everything sucks in the world. <laughs> you know, so you put a little olive oil, you butter the bread, put the bread down. You got to mix it, and and you see visually what he's doing, and he's, he's adjusting. He's describing what he's doing. There's a hot spot. You want to basically, you know, make sure this is uh, going on here. And his focus is purely on this grilled cheese. And we're talking about grilled cheese, which most everybody can make grilled cheese. The, the, one of the most perfect foods in the world. But. The trick is making an amazing grilled cheese. And he doesn't describe there what cheese he's putting into it. But it's, uh, I want to say it's probably like a cheddar. There's probably a gouda in there there's, uh, and another white cheese. But you can tell... Roy Choi describing the hot spots and how you got to move around, and make sure all the butter, the bread is uh, browned on all sides. And as you flip it over, he said, "There's nothing else around you. The only thing in the universe that matters is this bleeping sandwich." <laughs> and then there's a slight pause. And if you mess up this sandwich, the rest of the world's going to go to hell anyway. And it's just—it's such a perfect encapsulation of, I think, what a lot of food chefs look at is this one thing has to be perfect the the bread has to be brown on all sides the the, the cheese has to be properly melted and has to be dripping off the side and you have to flip it over and have the equal amount of uh, bread on the side and if you watch this end credit scene it's it's very obvious how much love and attention goes into this one simple little thing as grilled cheese and it look I mean I want to reach through the screen and take a bite of this grilled cheese because it's I mean it's thick it's melty there's little charred cheese bits I mean it is perfectly brown even and I'm it's hungry now. and it's an amazing scene because it just like I said it describes what we who think of ourselves as cooks like to put into every single dish right and right. I, and it was just a wonderful scene and I actually have it on. Flash drive, I'll, so I'll show it to you one okay, day. You know, that'd be great. but it's it's a good scene. The movie itself is pretty good. They talk about a couple of different types of food throughout it as well. But just that that scene of the consultant showing the actor how to cook it, it was just absolutely fascinating to me. Awesome. It's just rolling. Now, is this the one that has sparked the Netflix series? Yes. So based on John Favreau and Roy Cho's friendship, they have a series of Netflix now that's called The Chef Show, and they basically got back together. Because they enjoyed cooking so much that they cook. And you can see that John Favreau has actually gotten more skills. Mm-hmm. He's bought mm-hmm. his with knives and, and things so forth. But Roy Choi cooks a whole bunch of different things. So his his food truck is known for um, 
combining like Korean barbecue and like Mexican and uh, and things of this nature. It's it's kind of a I don't like using the word fusion, but it's kind of a fusion type of food truck. But you can tell he's classically trained. He knows how to cook a whole bunch of other things, and they have all sorts of guest stars. They had uh, David Chang on there once, and they were comp- comparing uh, Roy Choi and David Chang were comparing comparing uh, growing up Korean in Korean households. The 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 uh, there's a there's a comfort vegetable soup that their grandmothers both make and they both oh, make them differently, cool. but they're reminiscing <laughs> about that. that. That show is actually really good too. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, that's awesome. That's a great number one. That's a great number one. So um, mine is totally different from number one. Mine uh, actually has no cooking in it whatsoever, but okay. yet it's about food. So how is that possible? Well, to find the answer out, you would need to watch. 1985's The Stuff by Larry Cohen. (laughs) (laughs) By going to IMDb, it tells you a delicious, mysterious goo that oozes from the earth is marketed as the newest dessert sensation. But the tasty treat rots more than your teeth when the zombie-like snackers who only want to consume more and more want to take over the world at any costs. Mm. Now... (laughs) It's a wow. it's a yogurt whipped uh, cream looking stuff that comes literally comes out of the ground. But listen to this: this movie stars Michael Moriarty as David Mo Rutherford. Why do they call him Mo? Because no matter what they give him, he always wants Mo. <laughs> you know, Mister uh, Rutherford, Mo Rutherford. Yeah. You know why they call me Mo? No, why? Because every time people give me money, I always want Mo. <laughs> It has Garrett Morris from Saturday Night Live as Charles Chocolate Chip Charlie Hobbs, <laughs> whose uh, business is taken over, and he's trying to get to the root of who these stuff people are. Paul Sorvino. Uh, it's got um, Ed, uh, Eric Bugliosi. No, I'm sorry. Eric Bogosian. Uh, and Patrick Dempsey. Mira Sorvino is in it. She showed up one day to filming see her dad and they put her in and one of the coolest things about this is that there are the stuff commercials throughout the movie two or three different places and those star people like uh, Barbara Crampton Jeffrey Combs uh, Abe Vigoda (laughs) it's just just great and they have a wonderful wonderful uh, jingle that I'm going to put into the podcast right here just so you can hear what I'm talking about where's the stuff the stuff, the taste that makes you hungry for more. The stuff, the taste that delivers. Enough is never enough. Enough is never But uh, it's a it's a really cool movie. Uh, I actually have it on Arrow Video's uh, dual format DVD that I purchased. Bought it from the UK um, just to have it in, and it's it's one of those. If you've watched any of Larry Cohen's movies, uh, like the It's Alive trilogy um, or Q, the Winged Serpent, they all have their own special, unique look to them, and this movie is no exception. Um, Mo, the Michael Moriarty character, went on uh, later to star in the It's Alive uh, trilogy that Larry Cohen also did. 
about the mutant killer babies. So you just get an idea of what you're in for in this movie. The stuff. The stuff. The stuff. And it's a it's a it's it's really um, an, a, a very compelling look at consumerism and capitalism, and about how sometimes we let the things that we go out and get overcome us or overtake us. And in this movie, it was just too literal. <laughs> um, the interesting thing about it is that when the movie came out, it, it was, I don't want to say flopped, but it didn't do very well at all. And when asked about it later on, um, Cohen feels that it was the fact that it was not, that it was sold as a horror film instead of a satirical comedy. And he said that the day the stuff opened in New York, a hurricane hit. And the newspapers, who had all the good reviews, didn't get delivered. <laughs> That's why nobody went to see it. <laughs> sounds legitimate. Yeah, it sounds legitimate. So uh, I actually love a lot of the Larry Cohen films, and we'll be doing a, a podcast just on the films of Larry Cohen, uh, my fate, five films of his. So that's going to be tough. I'm going to have to sit down and figure out, is it Black Caesar or Hell Up in Harlem or The Ambulance or The Stuff? There's so many good films to look for. So that's my number one, folks. We appreciate it. Uh, I think this was this has been a lot of fun. I, I like yeah, it has been. I appreciate, I appreciate you uh, bringing me in, inviting I, me to the show. I am a little disappointed that you didn't, you know, bring us any snacks to eat while you were here. But you <laughs> well, know, I it's a sound booth. I didn't figure we could eat anything. Oh, sure, we could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Well, thank y'all both for being here. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And You're thank welcome. you, listeners, for being there with us. I'd like to take a special opportunity to thank you, the listeners, for being here with us on this, our Food Faves episode of Fave 5 from Fans. And I want to ask you to be on the lookout for new episodes that are be coming out hopefully every two weeks. You can find them on Stitcher or Podcasts or iTunes or any of your normal podcasting streams. Don't forget out there, it may not be the best, it may not be the greatest, but as long as it's your favorite, that's good enough for us. You gotta tell them! Silent Breed is people! We've got to stop them somehow!